Well, good afternoon, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Breaking Legal Glass Ceilings. On this podcast, we've had the privilege of interviewing a whole range of people who have been successful in breaking the legal glass ceiling that would have stopped them becoming successful lawyers. Sometimes we interview people like Lady Hale, who is the first interviewee in this series, who broke the legal glass ceiling 40 years ago. And you may wonder, well, what's that really relevant? How's that going to help me if I've got to break the legal glass ceiling today? So it gives me enormous pleasure to welcome somebody who has not been a qualified lawyer for a full 12 months yet, who has come out of university, broken the legal glass ceiling, made a very impressive start as a lawyer, and has no doubt great things ahead of her. And we're getting in first. Alex Pritchard, who is an attorney in San Diego in California. Welcome to Legal Glass Ceilings. Thank you. Thank you for having me. <laughs> it's a pleasure. Can I ask you about your background? Because I understand you've lived on both coasts of the United States, growing up on the East Coast and now practicing on the West Coast. So tell me about your, your upbringing. Yes. So I'm originally from Atlanta, Georgia, south of the United States. And I grew up in a suburban town and I actually went to college upstate New York. So Syracuse University. So I just kind of, you know, I've been all over the United States. And after undergraduate, I spent some time in New York City. And then finally, I moved to San Diego for law school, got my first job at a firm out here and just stayed after law school. So I'm just trying to hit every corner of the United States before, you know, before I retire. So, yeah. <laughs> well, if I, if I was recruiting for a firm um, up in Seattle, I'd be uh, taking that as an invitation to have a conversation <laughs> with you. Tell me about your, your parents and your background. So I am actually in this, while we're here, I'm actually the first lawyer in my family. I grew up as the youngest of four. I am, and I think that this is relevant since people on the podcast can't see me, I am an African-American woman. And I grew up with two parents, but they were divorced. My mom is a nurse and my dad, by training, was an engineer. Um, But over time, you know, I feel like they had a very non-traditional start to their education and that made it very important to them that we got a good education. My mom actually I'm very proud about this, but she didn't really obtain her undergraduate degree until I was a sophomore in college for other struggles that she had. But throughout my upbringing, it was always a focus that, you know, I do whatever I can to really get access to education, even if financially I couldn't afford certain things. I found other ways to really get the best education I could in that scenario. Yeah, well, you and I have something in common. I was really proud of my mom when she got her degree age 72 for the first time. Um, uh, uh, it's, a, it's a brilliant thing. So you were at school in Atlanta, I take it? So I went to high school and um, primary school in Georgia. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that was what we would call state schools, public schools. Though, of course, in, in the UK, public schools mean something different. It means fee-paying top-grade private schools. But that's yeah, not that the same. Is- <laughs> Yeah, I, think that, I think that's one case where, when the, the the language used in the United States is clearer than the language we use over here. And we are, after all, two countries, you know, divided by a common language. So having gone through public school, when did you first have the idea that you might want to become a lawyer? Yeah, so I was very unique in the fact that I actually went to a performing arts high school. So um, my public school was, we call them charter schools or magnet schools. And very early on, I actually had a cousin who's an opera singer. 
very early on, I got to travel to Europe with her and see her perform. And I think that was the first time I knew I wanted to be a lawyer, but I didn't know what the words were for that. So I was around eight or nine. And I remember that my cousin and a lot of the performers always had these issues with being paid on time or feeling like they weren't being paid adequately for their performances. So I just, I don't know, even at nine, I'm just like, let me just say something. I can do something about this. And I knew at that moment, I wanted, I didn't know in what form that would take, but that was kind of my first. And then throughout primary school, I was very interested in debate and history. And when I went to college, I knew I wanted to be a lawyer. But I think after my first year, they brought us all into a room and they said, if you can find anything else to do, but be a lawyer, do that. And I felt a little discouraged for a little while, which is why I took some time off really before deciding to go to law school. Because in, in the States, unlike in, in the UK, you can't study law, as I understand it, as an undergraduate. It's a purely graduate course. Is that right? Yes. And, you know, my friends and I, we joke all the time. You can really study anything in under in um, your undergraduate studies and still be a lawyer. I, I minored in dance and majored in psychology, which, you know, doesn't really translate to law in some ways. So you definitely can't do that until after you finish undergraduate school. Tell me about dance. I love dance. Like, honestly, if it were possible, I think that would be, if I, I couldn't be a lawyer, I'd probably be a dancer. But I love it because it's a different persona from who I am at work or how I am as a lawyer. I get to completely be me and express myself through a different avenue. I feel like at work, my greatest superpower is what I can do with my brain. But when I'm on the dance floor, it's all about my connection with my body and my fluidity. And that is, that's an amazing contrast to have. It's a great outlet to have as a lawyer. Yeah, no, I, I'm <laughs> hopeless at dance, but I can really relate to that. That's brilliant. So you did... I think really well in your bachelor's degree. And having got this superb degree, you then decided to go into the workplace and work for a few years. Yeah. Um, what were you doing? So I actually started off right after college doing an entertainment um, job. So I was a media planner and buyer. So basically I worked for big companies and I helped them with their advertising and media and buying them in the market. Um, and I thought, like I said, in undergrad, I thought I wanted to be a lawyer. People told me it was really hard. I shouldn't do it. So I told myself, okay, I'll try something else. But the idea of being a lawyer just kept coming back to me. And at a certain point, I even told some of my managers at my old job, like, I don't want to give up on this dream and say that, like, I never tried it. So I'd rather go for this and fail than not go at all. So eventually, after two years, I started the process of getting accepted into law school and starting my studies. And how did you fund those studies? <laughs> I am still funding it now. So I feel like in this, I think that this is, I won't say it's a unique struggle, but I think that I was a bit more strategic and had to limit my options where I studied in ways because I fully funded my education. So I, I believe I received a, a scholarship that was worth maybe 70% of my tuition. And so through loans and work, I funded the other 30% and then my living expenses for the last three years, including 
bar expenses and taking three months off to study for that. So it was it was a very expensive endeavor. And that's, again, why I said I wanted to make sure I was doing it for me and not for anyone else, because that is a huge undertaking if you really don't want to do it. Students in the UK are facing the reality of high debts coming out of the university experience. And this is the first generation, or maybe the first generation and a half that have they've had that because 20 years ago students expected to go through and essentially come out debt free right um but as i understand it the american system a very large number of students come out with substantial debt at the end of their university experience is that right yeah that is that is the common theme and i'm so sorry i will i will answer that but i i actually want to know why is why is there a shift in the way that university is being funded for students now because I was uh, under the well, assumption it was cheaper as well. <laughs> it is cheaper still, but it's all politics. Um, mm-hmm. the, the government in maybe 20 years ago took the view that there should be some contribution made by students mm-hmm. to the cost of their education. And then a subsequent government decided that essentially those who benefit from the student education should fund it. And they mm-hmm. created a student loan scheme as opposed to what was previously a government grant scheme. You know, there are arguments both ways, not for me to express a view as to what what the right answer is. I mean, certainly you could make the case that taxpayers paying for 50 percent of students to go to university resulted in a substantial transfer of resources from everybody to largely the more affluent students. Exactly. But it's a it's a different approach. It's a European versus American approach. And I understand in America, the, the approach has been largely that the state doesn't have anything to do with funding and that it's either grants from universities and charitable trusts and scholarships or students fund it themselves through parents or through loans. Is that right? Exactly. And I don't know, it's, just, it's a weird it's a weird system. Like I said, it made me very conscientious about the choices that I made really making sure I wanted to pursue this degree. However, I think about my friends now that are starting practice with me. It's just a different starting line. And this is something that I think about with my children. I am working very hard as a lawyer because I want to make sure I can help them fund their education. But as you will see, I think in America, I think 3% of lawyers are of minority backgrounds. And it is really telling because in America, it is very expensive to obtain this education. And it's unfortunate in a way because it deters people from the practice. So one of the barriers that you had to face in realizing your dream to become a lawyer was the courage to take on the financial commitment of the training process. (laughs) Yes. The courage to take that on. Yes, definitely. Now, obviously, you're now in work. (laughs) You're in in a prestigious law firm. But tell me how that felt when you were looking at it in your first or second year of law school and the prospect of actually getting a job as a lawyer was a long way away. So I think think that question is so loaded. There's so many things I would like to tell you about that. So one from, I I do work at um, a prestigious law firm. We, in America, we call them AMLAW 100. So I work at one of the top 100 firms in America. And when I started law school, that was not a dream that I had. I really wanted to go more of the public interest route. And I honestly 
to put things in perspective, after my first year, I just wanted to get an internship that would pay me like $20 an hour so I could pay my rent and go to school the next semester. I ended up doing really well and I got an opportunity to summer at this law firm after my first year, which usually doesn't happen. You usually get that opportunity after your second year. And I really had an internal struggle with a mentor at my university because I felt like, especially coming from a African-American background, a low-income background, that choosing a route of security and of prestige was kind of turning my back on a lot of my background. So I think that that is a constant struggle. It's like, of course, you work very hard and you want to be in these positions, but you can't help thinking about what you may be leaving behind when you choose a certain route, if that makes sense. No, sure, because you were a summer associate at a company which was then called Troutman Sanders. Yeah. And then I think it merged and it's now Troutman Sanders Pepper Hamilton. Yes. Is that right? Yes. Which presumably there's been a merger between Troutman Sanders <laughs> yes, and Pepper and Hamilton. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, we're used to that in this country. We, in this country, we when there are mergers, they tend to get the names even shorter. But in America, they seem to get it longer and longer. I, I feel sorry for the, um, for the receptionist who has to say, Troutman Sanders Pepper Hamilton, um, 47,000 times a day. (laughs) (laughs) Well, we keep it short. We just go Troutman Pepper. We take the beginning and the end. Right. Okay. Go that way. (laughs) Yeah. An underlying observation, there is actually quite a serious point, which is if you're from a low-income environment, was there an expectation that you would do law for low-income families? Hmm. Okay, so this is very interesting because, I mean, for my parents and my friends and family, no, they were very proud of me. And I actually had someone tell me, you know, and I, and I really enjoy what I do now and the people that I work with, but they basically told me like, if you can be trained and do well there, you can go anywhere. And these big law firms have more resources where you can do pro bono and advocacy work. However, I did notice from a lot of my classmates, there was a bit of backlash. I remember after my first summer, I even had a white classmate of mine come up to me and tell me like, how does it feel to be a sellout? And of course, now I have, I have the words to say to that. But then, you know, I was really struggling with this feeling and it really hurt for someone who really didn't understand my situation to put that judgment on me. And I think also from an American perspective, and this is something I learned in one of my civil rights theories class in law school, for a long time in America, if you were an African-American attorney or from a minority background, a lot of times the jobs that were offered to you were government jobs. And these private law firms did not accept associates of these backgrounds. So it's actually an accomplishment and breaking a glass ceiling in itself to choose private practice and making room and a difference in that arena than kind of going the traditional route and doing public interest, if that makes sense. It's really interesting because I wonder if your white classmate was really saying to you, in effect, how dare you take my my summer associate job? Because it's hard enough already to get these things. But if all the talented black students start competing as well, then, hey, it gets even harder. And there's a sort of tinge of racism somewhere underlying that, which is not very attractive if you peel back the bark of the orange and have a look at what's underneath. Yeah, I 
Yes, I don't really know what to say to that. I completely agree. And I think that I am one of the members of this unique, I guess, time frame where I actually spent exactly half of my time in law school online during COVID and then also during the George Floyd protest. So all of that, you know, I feel like all of those things fueled our interaction. So there probably was a lot of meaning behind that behind that phrase or for me it was just the audacity to say that because I would I don't think I would ever something that offensive to someone and it was just so ostentatious to to say that even if even if she did feel that way. So yeah. Yeah. Tell me what it's like to realize that a law firm lives up to its commitment Hmm. to equality because it's hired you. Yeah. And it's presumably done that because it's talent spotting mm-hmm. and you are a phenomenally talented young woman. But how does it feel to you, say, to see that actually this commitment to, to equality is real and not just, you know, on paper, but never happens in practice? Yeah, to be honest with you, it, it's what makes me stay. Um, I, you know, I'm in San Diego and in our West Coast offices, there are three Black partners and associates. And I feel like the female partners, the partners of color, and even our um, our practice group lead, who is a white man, they have made an extra effort to make sure they know that we are supported, we can speak up, and we can really ask for the opportunities that we want. And I think that that really does show the difference. I think that a lot of times, a black associate or an Asian associate is hired. They, they're put into a room and then two years later they leave. But showing commitment is really showing that investment and that I can call you up and knock on your door when I need something. And I think that I exactly that's why I stay at this firm because our job is very stressful. And, you know, there's headhunters every day that, that want you to go somewhere else, but it really is the people who are investing time in you that really show the difference. I, I really don't care what your website says about diversity. I need to hear from the people in your firm. I think that's a fascinating observation because many of the people listening to this podcast will, will be in a position of management in law firms, will be in a position of hiring and supporting younger lawyers. And to hear it from you that it doesn't matter what the, what the policy says, it's what the practical experience of young lawyers is that really makes the difference, I think is a, is a really good message. And, and tell me about the work you're doing now. Yeah. Who are your clients? No, I can't say my clients, unfortunately. No, 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 I mean, what type of people are your clients? Of course you can't tell me precisely. That would be breach of confidentiality and then your fantastic career will come to a premature end. No, 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 tell me about the type of organizations yeah. you act for. <laughs> so I currently, I actually do business and privacy litigation. So our firm recently created a privacy litigation group. So we help clients when it comes to data breaches incidences with personal information being shared inaccurately. And we do a lot of work under, it's called the Fair Credit Reporting Act. So a lot of times people may, you know, apply for a loan or a car, and there are issues with your personal information, like there may be mistakes made. So we defend companies and help them to remediate their policies in order to improve their privacy policies and their relations with their customers. So effectively, you're acting for companies, but you're a mixture of police officer, a social <laughs> <Wow>. worker, <laughs> and a defense attorney. Is hmm. that fair? 
I like I like that assessment. Yes, because there's there's so many stages. Like just when we in the defense, that that's not it. We have to do kind of a three sixty approach to fix this problem to prevent it for the next time. So I do like that. I'm a police officer, a social worker, and a defense attorney all in one. That that is wow. That's brilliant. I'm going to tell my partner that. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I've got copyright on that. So, you know, <laughs> um, and along with that, you had a, a consistent commitment to doing pro bono work. Yeah. Um, why is that important to you? Why, why, why spend time working for people who can't afford your services? Well, there's a there's a few reasons. So when I first started, I actually had a senior associate tell me that she she does a lot of guardianship cases. So we're in San Diego, we're on the border. So issues of making sure young immigrant children have proper guardianship over here is an issue that she was very passionate about. And she said that, you know, having a pro bono practice outside of work really helps you to appreciate and enjoy the work. So, and then also, as I said earlier on, when I first started law school, I wanted to go into a public interest sector. So doing a pro bono work and developing a pro bono practice helps me I guess, keep true to the reason why I went to law school in some ways. And then also, it's a really great way to get experience. Um, I really specialize in doing domestic violence, restraining orders, and issues like that. And it's a great way to get courtroom experience and to also be able to help and listen to someone who most likely doesn't ever feel like they have really been listened to. Because when I started my legal practice, which, of course, you know, was in the mid-19th century, I was in practice in Birmingham. And essentially, I went to court every day. And so I was a different case, different witnesses, different problems. And you had witness handling issues, client handling issues, clients who turned up and then, you know, went to the toilet and disappeared forever. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) Clients who who were mad and some of those running businesses all sorts and it was just the most brilliant training ground because nothing could phase you after you've done that for a few years it sounds like pro bono work is doing the same thing for you supplementing the more commercial stuff you do during the day definitely and i and to your point i mean you don't know who you're going to get so it also is it's um it's a lesson in patience and a lesson in appreciation like I feel like as a lawyer, I have access and I have understanding to all of this knowledge that most Americans do not have. And I think it's all of our duties to really pass that on and help others with that. Yeah. Now, Alex, your family are obviously very proud of you, having broken the glass ceiling. The community of which they're part of will be proud of you. How do you see yourself going forward of making a difference to the next generation of mm-hmm. young black kids coming through so they've got a better chance at life? That's like the hardest question ever. And <laughs> something that I always struggle with because I am not in this position only for me to achieve this position. I have to make room for others. And so to be completely honest with you, I'm still developing and understanding how I can do this. I know for a fact that right now, even as a first year, I do serve on our recruiting committee. I think it's important that when we're going out to schools and we are trying to pick out legal talent, they have a face that represents what the firm looks like. So they're more likely to come to that firm. And also, I think that, and this goes for any 
student. I think that one thing that really helps students is being honest about your struggles. I think that my first year has been tumultuous at times, but I think the hardest part was thinking that I was the only one that was struggling or having these mistakes. And I think that even now when I talk to my mentees still in law school, I am very open and honest in saying that, no, I'm not perfect. Things happen. And like, this is okay. We can bounce back from that. So really telling the next generation, just because you have struggles, you don't come from this traditional background, that is not enough. And it will not be enough to stop you from getting a seat at the table. That's a really good message because we're all on the trampoline. Yeah. We're all bouncing down and trying then to bounce back up again. And it doesn't matter how senior you are, you keep getting the knocks. It's the nature of legal practice. And if you can't deal with the knocks, either self-inflicted or inflicted by others, is it the wrong profession for you? Um, <laughs> I think that I'm not going to say it's the wrong profession for you, but you, you definitely do have to develop a thick skin. And like I said, it comes from building that community. Like there, there was one incident I, of my first year where I felt like every single day for like two weeks, I just got an email from a, a partner or senior associate about everything that I did wrong. And when I found my community and I found out that this was happening to everyone else, you start to understand that lawyers show love in a weird way. <laughs> and maybe, maybe this criticism, maybe these critiques are just a way of building and expecting the best. So if it's hard to take at first, I, I wouldn't say this is not for you, but, you know, check in with yourself maybe after a couple of years. And if it's still difficult, like, yeah, maybe, maybe it's time to move on because it's going to be a long road ahead. <laughs> There's a message there for junior lawyers and a message for supervisors as well trying to extract out the message for supervisors is to remember the praise sandwich because everybody does some things right yeah. and everybody does something's wrong and the yeah. temptation of focusing on the wrong has the potential to destroy the the aspiring professional so we must emphasize what people have done right equally the message for the student or the junior lawyer is don't expect to get everything right first time treat the criticism as a learning opportunity not as an attack on your ego exactly that yes <laughs> yes and my mentors tell me this every single day because that is something I struggle with I I want to be perfect I take things to heart but in the practice of law you know you really have to let some things go like of course try strive to do your best but some of the stuff you just gotta let it go and tomorrow's a new day so try again. Alex, have you been taught that to make good use of your time as a lawyer, you must do a job that's good enough, but producing a Rolls-Royce solution to every question is actually a waste of your time and a waste of the client's money? Hmm. That once you've got to the point when it's good enough, it's good enough. Hmm. I would say it depends on the situation. I think that with one of my particular clients that I work for and an associate, it is, we are always striving for words, voice, like quality work. Like there is no, there is no room in not being tip top, but for other, but for other issues, 
there are times where, I mean, time just doesn't permit. Like you have to make the best effort you can in a limited amount of time. Sometimes we have clients who have problems that need to be solved like overnight. So we have to get a solution and an issue solved in the best way that we can with the resources that we have. Yeah. Well, you've clearly got a fantastic career ahead of you, and you've always had a lot of help from people in the past. Mm-hmm. Tell me the best piece of advice that you were given. Yeah. So I think that the best piece of advice was given to me by my sister-in-law when I was starting last year. And she told me to think about what I wanted to be known as, as a lawyer. So she basically was saying to me, like, you know, you don't have time and you really don't have the ability to be great at everything, but you can identify the things that you're really good at, hone those skills and be known for those things. So if you want to be known as the person that the client feels most comfortable talking to, like hone your communication skills, but find your niche within this profession and don't try to be a jack of all trades. So I think that was the best piece of advice. And I'm still trying to find those areas, but I try to let that drive me. And where are Alex's skills? Are they in the interpersonal or in the black letter law or somewhere in between? (laughs) I think that I lean more interpersonal. I think that one of my greatest strengths is making people feel like they are the most important person in the room. And I think that that really works well in a law firm because I get assignments for multiple people. So in a law firm setting, your clients are your partners, your associates. And I really do pride myself in making people feel like what they need is my priority, even if I have a thousand things on my plate. So I think that that is one thing that really makes me stand out and really attracts people to me. Being in the legal profession, we are in a service profession. And why have all this knowledge if you're not going to make people feel like you're their advocate, you're on their side, and you're listening? Yeah, that's really good. And and if you look back to your 16-year-old, 17-year-old self, you see somebody brimming with enthusiasm and talent and not quite sure whether they want to be a lawyer or not, even though it would be very useful for solving your opera singer yeah. cousin's <laughs> uh, finance problems. And they're saying, okay, so 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 what's the best piece of advice for me? What should I do? How, how would you advise your 17-year-old self? I would say if there are lawyers in your life, if there are people who do this type of work, of course, try to shadow them. But instead of thinking about being a lawyer, as I said before, think about qualities because there are so many different types of lawyers. So think about the qualities that you appreciate, that you like, and take that and look at what people are doing to accentuate those qualities. And so I think that I don't like to discourage anyone and say like, don't be a lawyer, but I think that it is really a path of self-discovery. And unfortunately, the way our education system works is you have to figure out what you want. But I think that, especially with my journey and what I would encourage a 17-year-old is don't feel like you're closed in. You can change your mind and you can decide to be a lawyer one day and decide not to be, but allow that journey to happen. Be, Be willing to explore and be willing to see what different lawyers do and figure out if that works for you. One of the things that I feel very strongly about is that the best lawyers are not just lawyers. They're lawyers 
who have multiple strings to their bow. Mm -hmm. They understand about literature. They understand about psychology. They understand about people. They understand about society and how financial flows work and how businesses work. Because after all, in the end, we don't give legal advice in a vacuum. We give legal advice to real people with real problems who need advice which is relevant to wherever they are and whatever they're doing. So if you don't know about them, it doesn't matter how brilliant you are in the Supreme Court, you're not actually going to develop a practice. <laughs> I completely agree. I think that, unfortunately, I can just speak for um, in America, but unfortunately, when we're talking about faith in attorneys, our legal system, we have issues with that because we feel like our leaders and our lawyers are disconnected from what people need and want. And like I said, I feel like as a group of people who have the privilege of education, it is on all of us to make sure that we are sharing that and being accepting and understanding of those who may not have that same level of education or understanding. And how much do we, the privileged, in the sense of you know, education privilege, financial privilege, actually have a duty to adopt higher ethical standards, higher moral standards, higher standards of honesty mm. than people would expect. I mean, there's a very strong yeah. theme at the UK, the English bar, which is, you know, you're a servant of the court. You never, never mislead the court. Yeah. The ethical standards we're expected are at the highest possible level. Has that been drummed into you in law school and in, in, in the firm? I think so. And I will say that the United States is different in the fact that, like, I am, I am barred in California, and I think that the standards per state differ a little bit. But I know for me, it is technically in the California, like, when I swore my oath, when I became an attorney, I swore to be a servant to the court. I also have an ethical duty to actually do pro bono work. It is very common for an attorney to go into court and a judge may just assign you an indigent client. So, and I think at my firm, that same commitment is there. Like no matter what client we have, big or small account, you know, we're doing the best work possible that we can do for anyone. And I do think that your question is tricky because I do understand the arguments on both sides. Um, I think as the quote unquote privilege, the educated, you know, you still want to take care of yourself and make sure you're okay. And you can't help anyone if you're not okay. But I think the way that I look at it is, do I have any excess to give? And if I have excess, why not give it? I think that's a morality check for everyone. Like we all have a little bit more that we could give. So why not give it? Because it's just going to go to waste anyways. Yeah. Alex. You've got a fantastic future ahead of you. I'll be really interested to sit down with you in five years' time and see what it's like being managing partner of your firm. But um, in the meantime, thank you very much for the time you spent this afternoon. I'm sure that a lot of people will have learned an awful lot and gained an awful lot from your insights. And very much best of luck for the future. Thank you. Thank you so much.